Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from 1 Peter 3. The passage can be found on page 10 and will also be projected above. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, to put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Claire. Okay, uh, kids, I uh, mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin. You can find that now. There's a spot on there to jot down three things that I want you to listen specifically for. One is the 3 a.m. test. Secondly, flight or fight. And then thirdly, marathon. So 3 a.m. test, flight or fight, and then marathon. Let me, uh, let me pray for us as we come to this passage together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given it to us because you love us. And so we pray that now you would use your word by your spirit to accomplish what you desire in us and that we would behold Jesus in all of his beauty and glory. For we pray it all in his name. Amen. Uh, Brian Chappell is a uh, pastor in our, in our denomination. Uh, for a number of years, he was the president of Covenant Seminary. While he was there, he was also a, a professor of preaching, and he literally wrote the book on preaching. And, uh, and in that book, he uses the phrase 3 a.m. test. And so here's what he means by that. He, he says, you need to imagine a friend or a roommate or your spouse waking you up from a dead sleep at 3 a.m. in the morning and asking you, what is your sermon about? And you need to be able to say what it's about right at that point. And so the, the, the point is that it needs to, you need to have this clear focus of your sermon. And so that said, I would not have passed the 3 a.m. test this morning. 
Um, but the good news is that I would have passed the 8.30 a.m. or 9 a.m. test. Um, one of the very few blessings of a four o'clock service, right? Um, and I mention that because um, as you heard Claire reading, uh, this passage is really hard. Uh, there is a lot in here that is not at all clear or easy to understand. Here's the thing though, the, the overall point is very clear. And it's that, that Peter wants to encourage his people who are suffering the overwhelming discouragement of suffering. That is some of what they're dealing with and he wants to encourage them in that place. And um, I was thinking some even just about the last two weeks in the life of our church. And the reality is that uh, there are a whole lot of us in this room today who are in the valley in a pretty significant way. You have uh, Florence Call who had to have a bone marrow biopsy to determine whether the leukemia was having any effect on her three-year-old body. You had Dottie Ryan, a four-month-old girl who had to have open heart surgery in order to heal and, and uh, heal the holes that were in her heart. There are some of you in this room who are suffering from chronic pain and there is really no realistic hope that that's gonna change. There are others of you in here who are so heartbroken right now over the suffering that your children are enduring and the impact that it's having on the whole of your family. Others of you are here and you are fighting the, the darkness of anxiety and depression and it's the kind that won't go away. It's the kind that lingers and it feels as though you have this dark cloud over you at all times. Some of you are in horrible work situations right now where you're being blamed for things that you didn't do. You're being maligned for stuff that is not your fault and you're having to face that. We, uh, we prayed for my friend Ben Wheeler last Sunday um, ben is a uh, pastor friend. We were in seminary together, and uh, we've been in a pastor's group together since 2009. Um, a week ago Wednesday, his wife Rachel went to the doctor with some, uh, some weird symptoms. She was feeling fatigue, wasn't sleeping well. They began doing tests and uh, immediately realized she had a low platelet count. And so she was uh, then hospitalized right away. Two o'clock the next day on a Thursday, she was diagnosed with acute leukemia. Two and a half hours later, she had a brain hemorrhage, had to have emergency surgery in order to relieve the pressure. She was life-flighted from Tyler to, Dal to Dallas. And then on Friday at 5.30 p.m., she died. Her funeral was Tuesday in Tyler. She was 48 years old and left four children, and all of that happened in just over 48 hours. And I say that to mention that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And there are times where that feels so raw and overwhelming when the discouragement that you feel won't let up. There's a uh, great quote from one of the church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, and he says, it is impossible for one to live without tears who considers things exactly as they are. And so what I want you to hear uh, from this passage is that this is for you and it is for me right now in the middle of all of those things. And so Peter says that, that there is one place where you can look 
when you can't even see straight because you're so sad and heartbroken. And that place is Jesus's victory over all evil, over all suffering, over all sin, over all death, over all of those things that are a part of our sad world. That he is the only one who can actually bring you encouragement in the discouragement of your suffering. And so the question then is, is how does he do that? And Peter mentions a couple ways that, that I wanna highlight from this passage. Here's the first. In our suffering, we can experience and bear witness to the hope of Christ's resurrection. We can experience and bear witness to the hope of Christ's resurrection. So quick reminder of Peter's audience here. They, they have been scattered throughout the whole Roman Empire. And, and, uh, and, and they're trying to live faithfully in a world that doesn't share their faith. And, and the reality is they are suffering because of it. And so Peter's talked about the, the various areas of life where they're experiencing that suffering in, in relation to the government, the authorities over them. They're experiencing it in, in their work but from unjust masters and bosses. And they're, they're even experiencing it in some cases in their own marriages. And in all of those places, they're experiencing suffering. And it continues in this passage. He says in verse nine that, these, that there are people who are doing evil to them. They are reviling them. In verse 16, he says they're being slandered. And so that the specific suffering that, that he has in mind here is that of being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Following Jesus in this world is gonna put them in a tough place because they're gonna stand out. And they're gonna be slandered because of it. And so here's the question. How are they gonna be tempted to respond in that place. And so Peter actually mentions a couple ways. He says first, it's, it's, it's the temptation to either flight or to fight. And so first, the temptation to flight, he says that the temptation is gonna be when you face that kind of opposition is to become fearful. And so he, he tells them that specifically in verse 14. He says, have no fear of them. And he says that because he recognizes that that's gonna be a temptation where things are, are, are so hard, where you've got people coming at you and you're in this world that, that is hostile to you. That is a really scary place to be. And so he says a natural temptation is gonna be to grow fearful in the face of that. That's one temptation. Here's the other though, and it's oftentimes when we feel that sense of fear and it's to fight back. He says that, that uh, he says that's exactly, uh, that's exactly what he mentions in verses nine through 11. He says, there's this temptation in that moment to retaliate, to take somebody down for what they've said to you or about you. And, and the deal is, is that this, this actually would have been much more tempting even in, in Peter's day, because this, this whole culture was built around so, so much of your own perceived honor. And so the normal way that you would respond to somebody speaking against you is that you would defend yourself and we don't live in that same kind of world, but, but that same impulse is something that we feel as well, to fight back against those who are speaking against you, who are saying things wrongly against you, to take them down at all costs. But what Peter says here is that while that is the natural response, that's the thing that comes naturally to us, that is not the way of Jesus. And so what he says instead in verse nine is that rather than repaying evil for evil, he says, we're to bless. And then in verse 11, he's quoting Psalm 34, and he says, we're to seek peace and pursue it. So when you suffer as one who belongs to Jesus, his point is that you are gonna suffer differently. You're gonna suffer differently. He gives a number of reasons of why that's true. I'm gonna just highlight two of them. 
Here's the first. When you suffer as one who belongs to Jesus, you can know that the Lord has not abandoned you. So look at verse 12. This is quoting Psalm 34. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. And, and one of the reasons that, that, uh, that I want to highlight this is because I think one of the greatest temptations in suffering is to believe that God is absent. It's to think that if God was really with me, that if he was really taking care of me in this moment, then he wouldn't let me hurt like this. And what Peter says is that that is not true. And so he quotes Psalm 34 to say that God sees you, that he sees you in your suffering and in your heartache, that that he knows your sorrow and he knows your pain and he has not left you in that place. And not only that, he doesn't just see you, but he also hears you when you cry out to him. That he hears your, your, your cries of anguish. And so in Psalm 34, just after this section that, that Peter quotes, David says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And if you skip down to, to verse 18, Peter says there that, that the reason that Jesus suffered for you was in order that he might bring you to God. In other words, God sent his son to bring you near to himself, and that doesn't change even in the midst of your worst suffering. So when you suffer as a follower of Jesus, he is with you in it. That's one way. Secondly, when you suffer as one who belongs to Jesus, you point to the hope of Jesus' resurrection. You point to the hope of his resurrection. So look at uh, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So a couple things to notice here. One is a basic point that is assumed by Peter, and it's this. You have hope in the midst of suffering. And that hope is the living hope into which you have been born through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so don't miss that point that, that, that Peter's making, that he's saying you can have hope in the midst of your sorrow and your suffering because of Jesus' resurrection. You can know with certainty that Jesus has conquered death and that your suffering is not gonna get the final word. And so we're gonna talk more about that in a moment here, but, but what I want you just to see from the beginning, you're, you're gonna have an opportunity to talk about this hope, but you need to see that you have this hope and that it's rooted in Jesus' resurrection. But secondly, he says, other people are gonna notice that kind of hope. And so he, he, he's talking specifically here about suffering persecution, but here's the deal. This applies to every bit of your suffering, all of it. He's saying that that, that the way that you endure suffering as one who belongs to Jesus is actually gonna provoke questions. Why? Well, because the resurrection of Jesus gives you hope in the midst of hopelessness. And so people see that and they know that that in this world, that's impossible. And so, so the answer to those questions that ask how How is it that you have this hope? The answer to that question is Jesus himself. That's what Peter's talking about here. 
And I want to be careful uh, when, when we talk about having this sort of, of hope in the midst of suffering because I think that there are a couple of ways in which we could misunderstand what Peter's saying. One of those ways is to think that, well, this means that I need to downplay my suffering in some way. That I need to try to ignore it or pretend that it's not that bad. At least try to, to show that everything really is going to be okay. And here's the thing. That's actually not bearing witness to the hope of Jesus. That's not what Jesus did. It's not what the Bible tells you to do. Neither is he talking about some kind of heroic act of faith. That's the other thing we might think of here, that somebody who's really super strong, whatever that means, in the midst of suffering. That's not what Peter's getting at here. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that we are to be a people who grieve. And in that specific passage, he's saying we're to be a people who grieve death. But what he goes on to say there is that we're not to grieve as those who have no hope. And the reason that he can say that is because through Jesus' resurrection, you do have hope. And what I want you to see, even in that passage, is that grief and hope are not incompatible. Those things are not mutually exclusive emotions and experiences. The beauty of Christianity is that you can look at the worst things in your life. You can look at the worst things in this world and you can call them what they are. And at the very same time, you don't have to go to a place of despair or cynicism. That is the hope that comes through Jesus' resurrection. And Peter is saying, when you suffer as one who belongs to Jesus, you're gonna have the opportunity to tell other people about the only source of that hope. This is, um, this is one of the things that my friend Ben did at his wife's funeral on Tuesday. So he got up and spoke and he wept openly from the pulpit. And at the same time, he talked about the hope of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And that is all you could possibly do in that moment, and that's what Peter's talking about. He says here, we're, we're to honor Christ the Lord as holy, which is another way to say, we are to recognize that he really is Lord, that he really is the resurrected king. And when you know that to be true, there's gonna be hope, even in the midst of the worst of your suffering. There's obviously plenty more we could say about this verse, sometime maybe we will, but we need to move on today. So God gives encouragement and suffering first, by enabling us to experience and to point to the hope of Jesus' resurrection. Secondly, in our suffering, we can experience hope, the hope of Christ's victory. We can experience the hope of Christ's victory. So um, this is in verses 18 to 22, and this is where things get super weird, right? So uh, verse 18 is pretty clear. Peter says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive or in or by the Spirit. And the S there could be capitalized there, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And so what Peter's saying here is this beautiful truth at the heart of the Bible that tells you exactly why Jesus suffered. He suffered for you, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. So it is this, this beautiful truth at the heart of what Christ has done. That's clear. The problem is that the rest of the passage is not clear, right? Um, Martin Luther says this about this passage. A wonderful text is this, 
and a a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. So that's pretty encouraging, right? Pretty promising. And so uh, this is one of those passages that, uh, that many faithful scholars, pastors, and theologians differ on. But here's what's really interesting about that. There is all kinds of difference on the details and the specifics in this passage. But there's actually not that much difference in terms of what Peter's overall point is. And so remember, uh, Peter's writing this in the context of his audience who are suffering. That he wants to comfort them with these words. That's what these words are intended to do. And so the question is how? So we're gonna, we're gonna dig into some details here, that, but, but here's the point that I want you to keep in mind as we look at this. So Peter says at the end of verses 21 and 22, that the reason you can be certain that God is going to rescue you from your suffering is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And not only that, he has ascended to God's right hand. And so right now, he has all authority over every single thing that could ever do you harm. He has authority over all evil. He has authority over all of your enemies. He has authority over all of the fallenness and brokenness of this sad world. And he even has authority over what Paul calls the final enemy, which is death itself. Jesus is victorious over every single bit of it. And that's part of what you have got to know and believe in the midst of your suffering. So the question then is, is how does Peter make that point? Well, he he does so in a couple of ways. And the first is by pointing to Christ's proclamation. So uh, verse 19, speaking of Jesus here, he says, in which, speaking of Jesus, he went and proclaimed to the spirits, that's gonna become important, to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were, safe, were brought safely through water. So the, the question is this, there are a couple of them. One is, who are these spirits that Jesus is proclaiming to? And when did he do it? When did this happen? So there are a, a, a few pretty major interpretations of this. Some have thought that this is actually talking about Jesus literally descending into hell and preaching the gospel to those who are already there, which would then give them a second chance at salvation. Um, the, that, that view has some, some pretty serious problems to it that, that would rule it out as a possibility. One is this, the Bible nowhere teaches that a person after death would have a second opportunity for salvation. So the, the, the sober reality of scripture is that those who die apart from Jesus will face judgment because of it. Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So that's one reason why why that can't be the view. The other is that the Bible doesn't actually teach that Jesus literally descended to hell. There are are a couple of passages that that would point us away from that. One is that as Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he is speaking to the thief that is hanging next to him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, as that thief dies, and so does Jesus, they will be together in paradise. The other issue is that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, and all four gospels record this, he cries out, it is finished. And what's finished there is that the full wrath for our sin has been exhausted on Jesus, and that payment 
has been made in full. And so it's not possible that Jesus could have descended to hell to literally then preach the gospel to the dead. And so that, that can't be what Peter's saying here. There's really only two other possibilities. And one is this, that Christ, before he came in the flesh and was incarnate, and was incarnate proclaimed this message of salvation and judgment by the Holy Spirit through Noah to the sinful people of Noah's day. And so in this view, when Peter says spirits, what he could be referring to then are, are the rebellious people that were around in Noah's day. And so some of the reasons that might be the case is that uh, Peter in the next chapter describes uh, uh, Noah as a herald of righteousness. And he's already said back in chapter one that the spirit of Christ is the one who is speaking through Old Testament prophets. And so also then, similar to Peter's audience, God saved Noah from a world that was hostile to him. And so that could be what, what, what Peter's saying here. I think, though, it's this final possibility. I think this is the most likely, again, super tentative in holding this. But it, it would be that the spirits actually refer to evil spirits. And the, the, the reason I think that's probably what Peter's doing is that when he uses the term spirits, both in, uh, in 1 Peter, but especially in 2 Peter, he's referring to spirits as evil in, that, in those places. And then even in Genesis 6, there's this account, which is also pretty obscure, of these evil, rebellious angels that were around and present in Noah's day. And so in, that, in this view, Christ, by the Spirit, is proclaiming defeat. He's not proclaiming necessarily a gospel message there, but he's proclaiming a message of defeat of all evil, rebellious angels, authorities, and powers. And that actually fits with what he says in verse 22. And that victory, he says, comes through his resurrection and ascension. So I know that there are a lot of particulars here, but here's the point. God was showing this, this uh, patience in the evil days of Noah, which is what he says in this passage, when Noah was facing this persecution, this suffering, and this hardship. But in those, in those moments, even while he had to wait, God's salvation of Noah and his family and the judgment of those around them was certain. It was absolutely certain to come. Similarly then, remember Peter's audience. They're enduring all of this suffering, all of this hardship. But what, what Peter is saying is that they also are gonna be delivered from that suffering. And they're gonna be delivered from those who are inflicting it upon them. So the point again is that the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus guarantees that victory for us even if that means waiting and suffering until then. So that's one way he makes this point. It's, it's by the proclamation of Jesus. The other way that he makes this point is by pointing to baptism. So verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, speaking of uh, this salvation that Noah and his family experienced, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So need to say here on the front end that he's not saying that baptism automatically saves anybody. So the Bible's clear about that in multiple other places. That's not the, the, uh, the sense in which he's describing baptism here. I think the way to understand this is to see some of the ways in which this corresponds to Noah and his family. So a couple of ways that, that we can see this. One is that water comes as this, uh, the, the, this means of salvation and judgment for Noah floods the world. There's a sense in which that's actually what's happening in baptism as well. That it comes as this message of salvation 
and judgment. But the other bigger point, the other bigger similarity here that, that is similar between Noah's day and Peter's day is that judgment is going to come, but there is this promise of salvation. God is going to judge all of the evil in this world. He is going to fix everything that is broken. He's gonna right every single wrong. And he's saying, just as I saved Noah and his family through the ark, I'm gonna save you now through, he says, the resurrection of Jesus. And it's your baptism that points to that promise, that reality, that guarantee. And so again, back to the main point. Jesus has suffered for you. He has suffered on your behalf. And it's through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension that he is going to defeat and has defeated any and everything that could possibly cause you suffering. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it means this. Your suffering has an expiration date. Your suffering, though it may feel this way, is not ultimate. There is an end to your suffering, and it is absolutely certain. Here's the problem with that. How does that help us right now? How does that help us when we're in the midst of waiting and suffering and sorrow that feels relentless and overwhelming and discouraging. I'm gonna try and illustrate it this way. I'm gonna, I'll close with this. The, uh, the Cowtown Marathon was last weekend, and um, one of the things that, that marathoners will tell you is that except in very rare cases, you are gonna hurt at some point in that race. That it, it's a long enough race to where you are most likely gonna feel miserable for a time. And so uh, part of what you have to do in training is to, one, know that's going to happen. You've got to know that you were going to hurt at some point. But the other thing that you have to do is you've got to actually practice keeping the end of that race in view. You have got to know that you're not always going to feel that way, that, that, that there is an end coming. And so in those moments when you are hurting worst, when you feel like you can't keep going, you've got to keep the end in mind. See, that is exactly what you've got to do in your suffering as well. You have got to know that because Jesus has suffered for you, because he has conquered death through his resurrection and ascension, your suffering is not gonna get the final word. That there is an end coming. And that that end is just as certain as Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that because of your son Jesus, Everything sad will come untrue. That he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and that there is coming a day when there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for those former things will have passed away. And he who will be seated on the throne will say, behold, I am making all things new. And so Father, we long for that day. We ache for that day. We groan for that day. And we pray, Lord, that uh, even as we follow our suffering Savior in the midst of 
the trials, the hardships, the tears of this broken world, that you by your grace would enable us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, our resurrected and ascended and victorious King. And we pray this all in his name, amen.